Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Welcome to the Speaking of Racism podcast. This is Gabe's Torres. This is the second to the last podcast episode that I have with y'all for the month of May to commemorate Mental Health Awareness Month and also Asian Pacific Islander, Asian Pacific American Month. And it has been a joy, a pleasure, an honor. Here today on the show is Tenya Ronchagutta. Tenya grew up surrounded by her Sri Lankan community in Southern California. And it is through her immigrant family upbringing where she learned about collective and inclusive communities. She took that worldview and professionalized it by becoming a social worker. She shares that she now carries people and community stories and histories and collaborate with them to show up as they are, as they choose to be, even in the face of adversity. She has a 20-year career that spans from oncology social work, private client grief and trauma counseling, supervision, coaching, corporate training, and a decade as an adjunct lecturer in the Graduate School of Social Work at the University of Washington. And here in our conversation, Tanya and I talk a lot about collective healing and what it means to enter a therapeutic or healing relationship and also bring parts of your culture and parts of your identity along with you. And this is such an important conversation because we live, especially those of us who are in the West, live in such a hyper-individualized space, right? And when it comes to healing, we often think about you know, the one-on-one aspect or dynamic around it, which, you know, that's valuable. And also, what is it like to lean into a more collective or community-based framework of care and of support? And here in this conversation, this powerful and beautiful conversation, we lean into what that means in not just a collective level in terms of like who is here on this earthly plane, but perhaps even beyond AKA we talked about ancestors too. So I hope that y'all are nourished and inspired and in some ways um, delightfully surprised by all that we have covered in this conversation today. Thank you. I always begin these interviews with a dedication. And this is inspired by Leila Saad and Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, where we dedicate our time together, our conversation together um, t- to an ancestor or more, um, to maybe a community of folks, to a non-human friend, animal pet, um, or to a person of influence. It can be somebody whom you haven't met yet or have never met Um and just, yeah, just wanted to ask or invite you to dedicate um, our time together to somebody. And I will do the same after. Okay. Yeah. We would love to hear that. Um, being that we are just a day from American Mother's Day, um, I have to, to, where I moved to say is my mother. Um, I'm grateful to still have a relationship with my mother. Um, she's living. She's 82. 
Um, and she is the OG social worker. Um, she is why I am a social worker, even though that would not have been a profession that this South Asian mother would have picked for me and actually was like, I'm not totally sure what that is. I'm like, it's what you do every day. <laughs> um, and I literally watched her from as long as I can remember um, sitting with people and communities, people in hardship, uh, inviting people into our home time after time. There was never a day that that door was closed to anyone. Even if she had an argument them argument with these same folks, they were still welcome into our home. She would feed them, counsel them. Um, and so I just watched her constantly attuning to people's needs, doing her best to make them feel welcome. Um, and I think I didn't even realize it, but it was just what I always saw. So um, I, I know that's why I do this work. Um, she and my family, of course, I grew up in collectivist culture, but I didn't even know to name that until later because it's always how I've been. Um, you're always looking, how can I make everyone feel included? What does that look like? Yeah. Please, the door is open. Like, I mean, even in my dorm room, the door was open. People could come in and talk and sit. And so, yes, I dedicate that to my mom who has a level of patience that I can't even begin to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and even now as an adult, I know that whatever is in a, her capacity, she would do for me without mm -hmm. hesitation. I know um, that there's just no end to what she would offer to me and others. And I just think that's incredible. And so I'm mm -hmm. really humbled by it. I there's a part of me knows that I can't replicate that as a mother for my own children, but I'm so grateful that's what I grew up in. Mm. That's, oh, that's, mm, that's so beautiful. Thank you, Tanya. Mm. And I also want to greet you, <laughs> belated Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. In the <laughs> American, so-called American context, um, honor, honor, honor to both you and to the one, the beautiful one, beloved one who birthed you. Thank you. Thank you. I, in, for our time together, I would like to dedicate it to actually our dog. Um, you know a lot about my dog yes. at this point. <laughs> uh, but uh, I want to dedicate our time together to uh, our dog's name is Mookie. Um, he is in the Philippines right now. And he is actually going through a lot of health stuff. And um, he is... 12 years old right now and he is strong and resilient and so full of of love and um hope that we also fill him with as much love um, as um he has given us for um 12 years and hopefully more to come um but yeah i dedicate my time our time together um to this beautiful canine wonder <laughs> So, yeah, thank you for doing this with me. Thank you for doing this dedication and this podcast conversation. Um, just wanted to give folks like, um, just wanted to make it clear at the outset that I am so grateful that we are having this conversation um, around what it's like to be practitioners of healing and uh, what it's like to, in our own way, in our own identities, um, decolonize or be anti-racist with um, with the way that we steward medicine from our collective identity, from our training, from our 
friendships and our community. So I'm really honored that you are here and um, really trust your intuition and your wisdom. Um, I'm grateful, so grateful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, and thank you for sharing about your canine love. Um, mm-hmm. I think animals that we have uh, brought into our lives as pets, especially, uh, they are just, they're true teachers. Um, and I, as you know, I, I we put down our doggy um, mm-hmm. a few months ago and uh, I just feel his love still. Mm. And um, that capacity, it's, it's just incredible. And I just... Yeah. It's, it stays with you, I guess. So, and I'm just sorry you're not closer to your, mm. um, your pup now. Thank you. So I'd love to hear your story. And what is it that led you to doing the work that you do now? Yes, um, you said that. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> uh, I think, Obviously, I think the foundation was set long before I became aware of it, which was through my mom and through my family. Um, And then I just, uh, as far back as I can remember, like I would say middle school or even before that, I love to hold people's stories, their personal experiences. Mm -hmm. I, um, it feels it feels like my place in the universe. Um, and I just remember even when I was in high school, people would come to me and tell me things that were hard for them. And I was so grateful that they were willing to be vulnerable. And I was, it's hard to believe this games, but I was an introvert in high school, (laughs) super introverted. Um, so I was just always like, and and the feeling I, I received when people shared this, was just, I was humbled, humbled that people would be vulnerable with me in that way mm-hmm. and share. And um, holding people's stories feels intuitive. It feels grounding. It feels energizing. Mm-hmm. Um, it never feels like a burden. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's just how I've always, how I've always experienced it. So I think, um, holding people's stories for as long as I can remember and then kind of having the experience I did in collectivist culture of how, how could that be, how does that represent who I am? And so it kind of evolved from there. And I think my undergrad degree was in psychology. Um, And then I um, spent time working after my undergrad degree and was interacting with a lot of social workers at the time. And it just made sense to me. I'm like, okay, um, the social work piece for me, and this is now probably obviously of other mental health fields, but social work in particular, not only did it look at the human in front of you, but you always knew the human was in context of everything else. So they mm. were sitting in environment, they were sitting in um, systems. And yeah. so that always appealed to me that we are, we are, our fabric is made up of experiences. Mm-hmm. And so that, um, you can't just say, look at the human alone. It always has to be all of those pieces combined. Yeah. And so I love that. That I, mm-hmm. I not only hear what they're coming to me with, but also beyond that. Like, tell me tell me what your childhood was like. Because that, what areas did you grow up in? What was happening politically at the time? What was happening um, 
from an environment standpoint, like there's so many components, like even going back and listening to my parents' stories, I'm like, what was happening in Sri Lanka at that time? Um, and how did that influence them? What did that look like? So I, I feel like that's always kind of where I landed is that I, I've always loved being the holder of people's stories. So being able to professionalize it and become a social worker and to do clinical work felt really in tune and in line um, with what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I think that's just where it started is that that's how it's been my whole life. And, um, and it always felt humbling. It always felt like sacred ground for people to share what they shared with me. Yeah. Um, and I still feel mm-hmm. that way today, um, mm-hmm. every day, every time. And it doesn't matter who is sharing their lived experience or story. I'm like, wow. And you're trusting mm-hmm. me with this. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm covering for a colleague right now. And this person who doesn't even know me was having a hard day today and mm-hmm. said, would it be okay to connect? And so I called this person knowing that my colleague has relationship with I don't. And I just put it out there that I know I don't have a relationship with you but I would love to hold this space in whatever way um, would be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. And as they teared up and shared, I was again overwhelmed. I'm like, this person who is a stranger to me that I've never met is willing to be vulnerable with me and share their yeah. pain yeah. and trust that I'll hold it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know if that totally answers your question, oh, but yeah. I just felt like it evolved Absolutely. into that, like mm-hmm. that journey. Mm-hmm. It sounds so, it's just so beautiful to hear that, Tanya, and how there's so much reverence and so much um, mindfulness in how you hold these stories. And what this reminds me of is how every human being is a contextualized um, and storied being. I love how much your imagination and your uh, framework coming from collectivist cultures uh, impacts treatment, the way that you hold space for people, knowing that both trauma and treatment of said trauma or medicine even is not an isolated process, is not an isolated event. We're all connected in not just um, an interpersonal, relational um, capacity or even intergenerational capacity, but also systemic. So I want to kind of like ask a little bit more about collective healing. And so I, I talked about this in the previous interview with uh, my friend Melody, where when we think about the therapeutic alliance or the relationship between therapist and client, it's immediate, almost immediate for me to envision or to visualize rather uh, just two people. <laughs> and I'm curious, like what has been um your experience of seeing collective healing? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be within the context of mental health and social work, like it can be. And I also know that it can also transcend beyond that. I'm curious what your thoughts or feelings and reflections are around collective healing. I have a couple thoughts, but could you give me kind of um, 
maybe an example mm-hmm. of kind of what you're thinking about because I want to see yeah. if it's in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I think about group therapy. Like mm-hmm. I think – I also think about like my heritage workshop, which you already yes. um, are aware of. I like, can't wait to take <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for you to be in it. And yeah, so I, I think about these um, – these spaces where we get to bear witness to each other's stories and that there's not just one person who is having to, to navigate um, the, or it's not up to one person, right? Not, it's not just that one person who holds all the power to um, create the potential for, for addressing harm or creating healing. Is that helpful? Yes. Absolutely. I love that. Um, and I, and I really, it's not one person. It's never one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a question that you um, shared that's that what maybe we'll touch on later, but that idea of empowerment and mm-hmm. how we might help empower someone. And I really go back to the piece that I don't think I can empower someone else. Like, mm-hmm. I think that that is that you create a space and you foster an environment that supports them in reaching empowerment. That isn't something I give to someone, but something that happened recently that made me think of what you're sharing. And this is not necessarily clinically group therapy is phenomenal. I don't do a lot of group therapy. I do do group supervision of, I do a BIPOC supervision group for MSWs. And can I just say the healing that happens in that space is phenomenal. Um, My former students came to me the first time I did it and they came to me and I said, well, you know, I haven't done group therapy, group supervision, sorry, before. And they're like, that's okay. And so we discussed it and co-created the space. And I kept telling them what I receive in this space is phenomenal. And one of them finally said near the end, he said, I thought it was only one way. I'm like, it's never one way. It's us always growing together. And so, but um, I was thinking of, I had to do a facilitation of a DEI um, workshop the other day and I was doing the slides and um, I was doing a slide for creating the containers. So kind of setting um, agreements for the group in order to have a brave space. And so I, I typed in brave and images on Google and I want to see what came up because I want to put a little graphic because I know we're always we're drawn to that. I can't stand a lot of slide uh, words on slides. Um, and it was all individuals. Only oh, individuals wow. came up, like children and adults and people on tight ropes and people going like this and people with superhero costumes. There was not one picture of a group. And I actually wrote that in the notes in my slide. Isn't it interesting that all the pictures are of individuals? And I wanted to share, which I didn't have a chance to share in the facilitation, but I'll share it now, is that how I came to be in front of those folks that day was not by myself. And I can name to you 15 to 20 people that allowed me to be in front of that group, that my bravery, my healing, my abilities came from all these other folks, Um, whether it was family or friends. I remember... Um, A friend had texted me that day, remembering that I was, or the day before saying, how are you holding up? I said, you must be psychic because I said, (laughs) I'm struggling. And she's like, I thought you were. And she's like, Mm. what do you need? And just her supportive words 
not even having to know what I was, the technicality of what I was doing, just you've got this. My family being there, trusting, how are you doing? What's going on? There's so many people that are with me at all given moments so that I am never, even in this room with you right now, I am with everyone. Everyone comes with me. Mm. Um, so I think when I think of collectivist healing, that's what it is, that the voice that's coming out of me is not my own alone. Wow. I am, I am of we and, mm. um, and, and yeah, I am because we are even the conversations you and I have had, Gabe's you're so generous and kind with, um, appreciating me. And I'm like, we co-create this every minute whatever you say brings forth something in you. So when I think of that collectivist healing is that even if you're in a room with one person in front of you, they're bringing their we with them and I'm bringing my we and that's how we're interacting. Um, and so in the DEI work, it's tricky because a lot of times I'm not working with healers or, and I'm, I'm also healers. I'm cautious because I'm like, I don't feel like I'm giving healing. I feel like we're always, again, we are generating that mm -hmm. together. Um, mm -hmm. But it's tricky because a lot of people that I work with operate here in headspace and it's really hard for them to drop down into body because it doesn't yeah. feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so um, in headspace, sometimes you really focus on the, the me, like what's mm -hmm. happening right now. And mm -hmm. so, um, I'm just aware that I'm like, oh, you can't do this work without the we. Yeah. Like even that work you can't do without the we. The people that mm -hmm. come in to, that I see from a clinical standpoint, I know that you can't do it without the we. So mm -hmm. that's how I kind of think of that collectivist healing component. Oh, that's so beautiful. I felt all the things. I, <laughs> if only people were to see um, how... You, you saw me just now, like I was like waving my hands and just really excited. Um, I am because we are that South African proverb, Ubuntu. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And every time I, I hear uh, these, these realities, I was going to say ideas, but these realities that we are a constellation of stories and other voices and other people that we are who, who we are because of you know, a larger collective, like it makes me both excited and also really sad because of um, how the hyper individualism that exists in many spaces, whether that may be in education um, and in the helping professions, uh, specifically post enlightenment, right? Like if we're going to look into um, to European um, history and just the again, like the hyper focus of the self and, and focusing on one sense of independence as opposed to interdependence. Um, I also think about the, um, the word that comes to mind has been coming into mind is, is disenchantment, which also ties into like, um, to the hyper individualization. Like um, I, we're not impacted or um, accompanied by, not just like uh, the whole, as in like peoples here on the earth plane, but even with um, like, I could think about the stars. I think about guides. I think about decolonial or pre-colonial senses of spirituality and traditions, which if 
if, and we talk about this a lot in our work together, the hope as we decolonize mental health and helping professions is to incorporate um, pre-colonial traditions and spiritual traditions. Um, however, there's been a conversation around how much there's been a separation between the sciences and spirituality. Um, and I'm curious if you're open to talking about this, like what do you notice have been the misunderstandings around that separation, like is around that disconnect between science and spirituality, especially in the process of healing? I keep thinking, I'll start with the piece. Um, and I loved what you said about, again, that collectivist is not just those that are here, but like ancestors that we're also mm -hmm. carrying with us. Um, I think about, again, another question that you had here is I always think about the life that I am able to engage in right now mm -hmm. is, is because of so many that went before me. Um, and even though um, Sri Lankan people were not enslaved and brought to this country, um, it's because of so many folks that were enslaved and fought for rights. Like I think about um, the work that allowed for us to have the right to vote um, and how I would not if it wasn't for all the folks that fought be able to vote in this country either. Um, even though um, I think about, yeah, I just think about that everything that I enjoy, everything that I am able to engage in right now is because of so many generations of people that fought for those things. So that's mm -hmm. a we as well, that maybe they weren't my ancestors per se, mm -hmm. but I feel a, a kinship and gratitude every day I get to be who I want to be right now because of all of those folks that fought so hard. So I think about that. And I yeah. think maybe if, if you can link that to spirituality in some way mm -hmm. as well, that um, that sense of, of bravery and that search for freedom that can be passed on in a non-scientific way. Right. Um, uh, and so I, I think about that. I also think maybe I don't always look, I appreciate that a lot of, there's a lot of my students that I teach at in the MSW program at UW that talk a lot about atheism or uh, a disconnect. And when we do talk about when you are working with a family or a group or an individual, that faith is really important to them. They struggle to know how to engage that part. They think of it as being nosy or, oh, but, you know, what if they ask me this? Or how, how, do, I, how do I contain that? Like, I want them to share it, but not too much. And, um, yeah, I don't, again, not tying into the scientific per se, but just mm -hmm. being able to sit with faith in general. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, it, again... I think about when I was at Seattle Children's Hospital and I was an oncology social worker and there were folks that came to me not even having to ask what my faith was or the religious background I had. And they said, Tanya, they'd stop me in the hallway. Can you pray for me? Because I'm angry with God. I'm angry with God right now. Can you pray for me? Because I can't do it right now. And without hesitation, it was like this greater understanding. Yes, I can. I can pray for you. 
It's all right. You can be angry with God right now. That's okay. I can pray for you. Without having to even have like, I need to know what Tanner's faith is. I need to know this. I need the technicalities. It was like this greater attunement of being able to hold that space. Um, and it's, it's the part that's really hard to teach that piece. I think, um, that level of connection by faith, connection by attunement. Um, when people speak of the connection to stars and the universe, like the bottom line is the moon absolutely has an impact on the tide. Like that's a given, like we're willing to buy, we're willing to own that piece, but we can't own the other pieces. And so much of our reality exists outside of science. Um, So much of the work that I do with my clients is maybe outside of textbooks or, Mm -hmm. or um, those pieces. It is uh, that greater attunement, that greater faith that Mm -hmm. I have in humanity. Uh, that keeps me going, keeps me connected. Um, and in the worst of times, it's harder, but it's still there. It is still such an anchor for me to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. So it is hard. I, I, I don't I don't know that I have an answer to say it like that, but um, there's just so much I, I struggle sometimes to be able to teach because it doesn't look like something technical it's this greater attunement and connection um, that I feel to that faith, um, whether it be, um, you know, Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or Christianity. It's this mm-hmm. peace that I feel is a connection. So. Yeah. Mm. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for answering it in the way that is meaningful to you. That's really what I'm looking for. Is it okay that I keep flowing? Yes. Like I have follow-up questions. <laughs> Please flow away. I love it. That, that's the reality. It's like um, something that strikes you or something that strikes me. And I'm like, Wait. oh yeah. <laughs> I keep going back so, to that word disenchantment. And I am actually pulled yeah. to know more about that. Um, uh-huh. Cause I'm like disenchantment. Yes. And right. so, Yeah, I keep thinking about how, like, this is not to say or come from an assumption that um, the sciences are bad or wrong or anything like that. Like, if not for the sciences, we would not have come up with the much needed medicine for dentistry and all that. And I, I, what I'm really like, um, alluding to slash hinting at is really the connection between the sciences and spirituality and that there is no uh, severance between the two. It just so happens that there are certain folks who are in positions of power in the worlds of education and also of medicine and of the sciences that do attempt to disconnect those two or to kind of like inferiorize faith, Mm -hmm. inferiorize, um, all the other expressions of faith, whether that may be prayer and all that. And there's also like the opposite end, right? Where there's a lot of spiritual bypassing when it comes to um, like, for instance, my family, like whenever I talk about my depression and my anxiety, there's a rhetoric around um, 
you know, you just have to pray more. You just have to read your, especially coming from a Protestant, a Filipino Protestant family. Like there's like, it it feels like they're always at odds socially, you know, and that there's that that socially internalized um, understanding that they're rivals or there's that binary of if you believe in science and you must not believe in faith and and the other way around. So why, why? I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about even, isn't science like the original piece is like the wonder, the mm-hmm. wonder of how things exist. Ooh, I right? got chills. So, right. So like, <laughs> that's where science comes from. That wonder. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in amazement. I'm in wonder that how the universe exists. And then I look yeah. to better understand it. Um, and I think about uh, all the research that's been done with Buddhist monks and how meditation literally, and like, it's so funny how, now it's okay because we have these brain scans we can show to you that it has purpose. <laughs> I'm like, oh, 2,000 years ago when folks were doing it, it wasn't right. valid. But now <laughs> that we've, you know, uh, we, yeah. we've taken it and put it into a MRI machine, we're okay right. with that. Um, I really appreciate what you said about the cultural bypass too, is that I have a cousin in Sri Lanka who went in, uh, became a Buddhist monk and from what I can take, because it's a little bit hush-hush, that he most likely stops uh, s- struggles with some type of form of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when they speak of that, they, they try to make meaning in another way, like, oh, it might be just because he's a monk and he sees things in this other way, and which is wonderful. I, I do believe that people that do, um, that their brains are operating in different ways can, can have an, yeah. a sense that I don't have access to mm-hmm. because maybe my prefrontal cortex in some ways blocks it, it minimizes it. Right. But for right. me, I'm like, but also my cousin is suffering that he yeah. experiences uh, uh, paranoia that makes mm-hmm. him feel frightened and he's not sure what to do with it. So there's a yeah. piece that I'm like, for you, like I, prayer is absolutely important, but I just want to own that depression is real as shit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And it exists because for Sri Lankan people, I remember saying to them when, when I had come home from college, I'm like, oh, I'm feeling a little depressed. And my mom's like, there's no word for that in Sinhalese. I don't understand what you're saying. Wow. Um, and I'm like, okay, so if there's no word for it, is my, my, my experience not real? Right. right? But it is real. But it had yeah. to make meaning of it some way. Um, mm. And Sri Lanka, I mean, I did my, my – uh, master's level thesis on it on 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 suicide in sri lanka because it is one of the highest suicide rates in the world finland and sri lanka and that was this is about 20 years ago i don't know what the statistics are now but it was because i would believe that a lot of times there was no way to make meaning of people's suffering and there was like i think in a country of like 18 million people or whatever the the population was at the time there were so few mental health practitioners. It was not something that was seen as a way you address something. Wow. And so, yeah, so I'm thinking about that piece, but I'm also thinking about people ready to minimize faith. And I just can't in my, in my lived experience to see the power, to see the healing, to see the strength that lies in faith. I I can't, I can't ignore it. Yeah. I want to hear more about your story in the context of Sri Lankan culture and 
um, in however way you want to um, to share, uh, to the extent that you'd like to share. Because honestly, whenever I talk with folks about the Asian identity, Sri Lankan culture is it's not given a lot of recognition. A lot of South Asian, um, Southeast Asian cultures and peoples are not as recognized. And so I the, the reason why I... I and bring in the amazing and brilliant people that I'm bringing in for this podcast series. Um, for instance, the most recent one with a friend who is um, is Native Hawaiian. Not very many peoples in the Pacifica and Oceania, not they're not given as much recognition as a lot of Asians, more specifically East Asian folks during API month are given. And I would actually believe that same with Sri Lankan folks. And I'm curious um, about if, if you're willing to share a little bit about your culture, what is it that you um, love about it? What is complex about it? Any, however way you'd like to share. Yes, um, thank you. Um, I have, I will definitely say that oftentimes when you think of South Asians, um, Sri Lankans aren't necessarily highlighted and it could maybe vary from region to region, but in the area where we're in right now, I would definitely say Indian culture kind of will come up more when you think of South Asian culture, which I feel such a kinship to Indian folks. Um, And I think because here we are in the United States, so even when I'm in the grocery store, when I'm with my partner, I'm like, there's my people. And he's like, Mm -hmm. "Uh, not everyone that is brown is your people. I'm like, well, kind of they are. But Indian (laughs) folk, um, whether Sri Lankan or Indian, I feel like because we're here, I still feel a lot of kinship. And I'm actually part of a South Asian um, therapist group, which has, I've only been part of for the past probably four to five years and has really brought me so much healing collectively, but also just consult and authenticity, really just uh, great lived experiences. Um, And so I will say in full transparency, um, so I was born in Nova Scotia, Canada. Both my parents were born in Sri Lanka, but I grew up um, from one to seven in Ontario, uh, Canada. Um, And at the time, there was quite a stigma against having an Indian accent. And Indian, again, the overlap, no one would say a Sri Lankan accent, they'd say, you know, East Indian accent. So my parents only spoke to me in English. While I can understand quite a bit of Sinhalese, I just feel like language is such a huge um, root of culture. And mm-hmm. so I grieve often that I was not taught to speak Sinhalese because of what was going on in the environment that I was in at the time. Um, yeah. And so I do feel very much uh, a child of immigrant parents that has become more uh, westernized in culture. I will say growing up though, uh, everything I can remember was being surrounded and steeped in my relatives. I come from a very large family. There are eight, um, my, on my mom's side, eight siblings. She has, she is part of eight siblings and my dad is part of eight siblings. So I have just such a wealth of cousins and aunties and uncles. And then there's the folks that are Sri Lankan that are not by blood, but are my aunties and uncles. So when I go home to California to see my parents, 
Um, I have so many aunties and uncles that are not blood related, but they are as if it is blood related. And I teach my children that too, that there's no separation for me. These are my people. Um, I am humbled that even at this age, the people that ask about me and worry about me from when I was little, I have never felt like I was alone. Like I always know, even if something happened to my parents, I would always be in community. So those are the pieces that really resonate. Um, my mom is Buddhist and my dad is Catholic. And I love how I've seen them both go to temple and church seamlessly. Wow. They, they chose not to baptize me, but I went to church and learned how to pray the rosary. And, um, so, and then I also went to temple and I learned how to chant um, while holding string um, in Sanskrit, a language that is not a spoken language per se. Um, but, um, and so I, I, I think I love that, that it was such a blending of both. And in Sri Lanka, everyone's a little bit Buddhist because uh, <laughs> the idea is that um, Lord Buddha was not a God, but rather um, it's a, and Buddhism is a philosophy. So you're not in, you can still worship God whatever, whoever God is or whatever God is to you and still practice Buddhism because they're not in conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's how I grew up having that piece of it. Um, mm -hmm. Sri Lankan culture is very much steeped in delicious food. Uh, mm -hmm. you offer food, you show that as your love, um, you create so much. So everyone is welcome. Um, it's just, again, it's about always having community, thinking about the greatest good, for the greatest amount of people that are there. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. And for me, it was just, it, it is so much who I am. Before I had children, I talked to my partner and I already, I literally remember sitting on the couch sobbing because I knew I would not be able to replicate the childhood that I had for my children. Mm -hmm. um, and whether I'm always aware of it, there's so much of my culture um, how I grew up and, and are there hard parts to it? Yes. I always say Sri Lankan pride is sometimes the death of us. Like there is such strong pride on my mom's side, especially that sometimes I'm like, you are letting that get in the way of like your existence. Um, and also I know it's probably what allowed her to come to this country and exist mm -hmm. that pride. Um, she always taught me that anything you want, you can do it. No one is better than you. Um, education obviously was really important. Uh, I hold that still that no matter where you are in life, if you lose everything, you still have that piece of paper. And my mom did everything she could in her possible way to allow us to get those pieces of paper because that was so important. So I just think about the, the ways in which everyone in my Sri Lankan community, I had so many people that were my fans my advocates. Um, I also have to say Sri Lankan superstition is huge. Um, at my mm -hmm. wedding, we had to break a coconut because many people on your wedding day will wish you well, but not everyone has good intention in their heart when they're wishing you well. So oh, there's wow. something called badda and you break the coconut to release the badda. So that doesn't go with you. Um, wow. And there's, I, there's just endless superstitions. There's endless pieces that, if you look at it from a westernized lens, you just would think of it as meaningless or ridiculous or not science-based. Right. And, and I love it. I love every piece of it. Um, it just is who I am. You don't put your purse on the floor because the money will run out. 
you, um, you, uh, there's just so many things. Oh, don't, don't come back into the house after you've left. Cause that's bad that like, so I remember my mom bringing something out to me and out of the, out of the house. Cause she didn't want me to come back in and just, oh, wow. I mean, there's, it, I, there's like endless pieces that are involved wow. and that just make meaning to me. Um, yes. I remember having my palm read as a teenager when I was in Sri Lanka and, yes. and not being scared or anything and not having to worry about it being scientifically written that I just right. felt like this person could attune to me in a way that mm-hmm. was greater than, um, mm-hmm. that was on another level that could feel yeah. and see me. And I didn't have to be like, oh, did that come true? Did that this come true? It wasn't right. about that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I think, I don't know, those are all the pieces that I carry with me into, with you, carry into the mm-hmm. therapy room with me um, that I feel have allowed me to be resilient and adaptable. Um, that I grieve that I won't be able to properly transfer or um, share that, sorry, bug, um, share that with my, my children. But I talk about it all the time and I tell them and I try to expose, have them around my parents as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I, and I'm not blind to know that like there's hard pieces like the pride, but also there's a lot of gendering. So I have Mm -hmm. to be really cautious of the gendering that goes on. Um, Mm -hmm girls do this, boys do that. And I'm so proud when my daughter says, I don't think there should be a uh, boy and girl school because that is not fair to people who um, don't identify as either gender. And I'm like, mm-hmm. like I, I can raise this Sri Lankan, Thai, Hungarian little girl, this person, not even little girl, this person, and she mm-hmm. can hold that space, which was yeah. not necessarily taught to me, not because I'm right. not a judgment of my parents, but that was not something that they were exposed to and experienced. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, that's a very wow. long winded answer to what no. culture means to me and how I am sad that I, in many ways, when I, I, I long to hear your stories and hear about your family <laughs> because you have, you have it in a different way than I do. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I asked that question. I'm so, so glad because I definitely like resonate with what you said earlier about even though um, we're located in very different geographical locations in Asia, I still feel that like sense of kinship um, with the superstition, from the superstitions to the food to even like the pride that we hold in seeing who we are. Like that's def- that's also, I know that it's different and it's also quite Filipino. <laughs> I'm trying to remember certain superstitions that we had. I know that there's um, there are ones that, you know, you have to like bug bug or like shake um, your body after visiting the cemetery. I know that. Um, oh gosh, there's so many that I'm blanking on so much. Um, oh, there's one superstition in particular that when if you strangely without any reason have. Uh, started to have an insomnia and you never really had trouble sleeping before you didn't have coffee. And then all of a sudden you randomly couldn't sleep. It means that somebody's thinking about you romantically. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody has a crush on you. (laughs) That sounds like the greatest reason ever to have insomnia, right? (laughs) We love to pathologize insomnia here. It's like, Oh, someone is, having romantic feelings towards you. Right. And you're like, who? I know. Like, so every time I couldn't fall asleep, I'm like, okay. Okay. Hello. (laughs) Possibility. (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's amazing. Thank you so much. That was so I like as you were as you were sharing with me what it's like to like both the grief and also the celebration of culture and also like um the the experiences around assimilation, especially with the immigrant story and um and and just the 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 mixture, the complex mixture of all of that. Like I feel like there's I, I see like a tech a, a range of texture, a variety of color, and maybe feeling and hearing music and and that strong sense of togetherness. And I always love the way that you um, kind of like wrap up your your response by way of saying that I bring this to me in session. I bring this to me in my work with my clients, with my students. It's just, it's just so glorious. And how lucky are they to have you um, and to have you be aware of that? Because I know that there are so many teachers and therapists even who assume that, you know, there's, it's possible to disconnect that it's possible to approach the uh, approach treatment or the therapeutic relationship um, and to like I- extract the parts of my culture um, out of that when it's not if you can, but you know, it's not if, but how yes. it's influencing treatment. So thank you for that. So I'm curious about your medicine and yes, I do mean non-Western medicine. Like it could be um, ancestral um, medicine, what is it these days, especially in light of the times that we're living in right now yeah. with crisis after crisis on top of a global um, one? What is your medicine? So I made a couple notes when, I, when, when you said that because I, I love what you said right now. What is your medicine right now? Um, and what, I, what came to me was, um, and I think just I'm always reminded of my Buddhist roots that something was put in me from so long ago that I was, again, not even aware. It was so integrated into our everyday life. And so what came up for me for my medicine now is love, is grace, is compassion, is understanding, is sitting with discomfort um, without judgment or a need to fix. those are my biggest pieces. It's that leaning into understanding, leaning into compassion um, that are really my medicine now. Um, for me, being in community is so healing for me now. Um, I'm getting ready on Sunday to go see my family. And I know the minute I walk through that door, by the way, already uh, my mom has said, well, so-and-so is coming over on, on Sunday. <laughs> And so-and-so is going to come over on Monday. I'm like, I don't know how to rein her in. Like, I don't know how to rein her in. Like, um, and I, 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 it's, it's hard and I love it at the same time. Like, why do these folks that hardly ever see me want to come and see my children want to be with us? Like that I am connected to community in that way. I'm humbled. I am humbled that if something happened to Jason and I, there are about 50 people that are my family and outside that are not blood related that would take my kids and raise them as their own. I don't, I, there's nothing more I could ask for in this life than to be to be connected in that way. So that's my medicine. Yeah. Uh, Right now is feeling connection and community. It's um, being able to be in spaces with you. Uh, I only Mm -hmm. met you during pandemic and how grateful I am. And I think of the work you're doing and who you are um, Mm -hmm. that, that I feel, love from, I feel connection to. So 
I feel like for me, that is the medicine. I think, again, Buddhism really drives a lot of my place, which is the non-judgment, um, non-judgment of self. Because when I think about, I see someone screaming at someone on the street about not wearing a mask, I just try to be like, what, what is happening for that person? What, what is going on for them? Are they operating from fear? And when we operate from fear, we try to control. We try to have dominance. And how can I, I can scream right back at them. Or how do I want to engage? And I just mm-hmm. am constantly thinking about that piece of it. Like, and maybe because of the profession we're in, we don't, we don't get to not think of that lens. Like, and it doesn't mean that I can't be angry, but I can't just leave it at, I'm angry and I'm done. It right. always has to be like, what's, what's underneath that anger? I know anger is secondary. What's under, what's, what's, what's primary there? I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm grieving. I'm fearful. Um, what's under that for the person across the street? What's, what's, what's happening there? Um, yeah. And I, I know that some people feel, and there's, there was a student once never said to me directly, but I'm not an angry enough minority. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I can, I can hold that. And that's okay. Because maybe me coming into this, who I am is that that's just not, that would not be authentic for me. And I feel like everyone has to show up in their authenticity and where they are. Um, and that's just not my authentic place. So, so yeah, healing, constant healing is my medicine, uh, internally, externally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I didn't know if you were going to, I said a little bit about the decolonizing piece, but. Did you have words for that? There was a couple of things I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, Please. Because, um, yeah, I just think for me, it starts here. Um, the decolonizing work. Every day I wake up and it starts here in me and doing that work. Um, acknowledging how am I engaging or benefiting from white supremacy culture and how do I want to um, shift that? Yeah. And I'm not, it's never a one and done. I know I won't all of a sudden arrive at this place where I'm decolonized and let go. No, because I'm in it every day. And so it has to be conscientious. How am I showing up? What does that look like? But also without judgment, like I use Amazon and things come to my door using Amazon. And when I think about really the roots of white supremacy culture, it does really tie into this horrendous form of capitalism that we engage in too. Um, So do I judge myself and try to correct at the same time? No, I just say, okay, what can I do today? How can I show up today? How can I bring awareness? So it's that constant awareness, but with trying to hold love for myself as well as I, as I do this journey, because, um, I just think, I think you can't do one without the other. That's just, yeah. I, I don't think you can do. Um, and I think about um, how, how will I move away from white supremacy culture and how will I support others in moving away from that? But again, that it's a journey and that, yeah, um, yeah it can't be finished. It's, it's going to be constant in this world. That yeah. We're in. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot about starting with me um, yeah. and then the pieces that we do to embody, to stay, to, to bring closeness to mind and body, to live in body. I think that that also will move us towards 
decolonization, to keep living in body. Yes. Um, but again, it's work because so quickly we shoot up to head, mm-hmm. disconnect, disassociate, check out. Mm-hmm. And literally what I tell myself sometimes is come back, Tanya, stay with it, stay present. Um, even in the call I told you about earlier with that client, I wanted, I was worried so much about not being their, their person, their, their therapist, yeah. but I had to at one point, I'm like, stay present, Tanya, mm-hmm. stay present. That's all you need to do. Stay present with this person, stay in your body. Because I think the second I exit, that's when I embody the colonizer, mm-hmm. right? Because colonization around dominance and operating from that culture of fear and scarcity. So if I am operating from I'm not enough because I'm not that, then I'm no longer embodied. I've disconnected. So for me, I had to be like, I literally so often, stay here, Tanya. You don't need to go anywhere. Stay here. Stay here. Stay embodied. It's not easy. Because there's sometimes when I want to flee for safety as well. So yeah, so that's just a couple pieces I wanted to add to that. Mm, thank you. That's so powerful and such a it's a, a brave invitation. <laughs> it's so scary to be in body, and it's in some in a lot of cases it's much easier to intellectualize to be in the head. And uh, so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm. I really have no other words other than gratitude. I love that we're co-healing, co-healing yes. together. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, as a way to, to end our wonderful sacred time together, I'm curious if you have uh, a word or two to the folks who are already practicing or being trained to become mental health practitioners and um, social workers, particularly those who aim to do decolonizing and anti-racist work, uh, politicized healing, however, mental health jargon (laughs) that we could use there. Do you happen to have any words for them um, to empower or encourage or challenge them? I first, I think I want to say thank you. Thank you for those that are willing to take the risk to step into this work. I know it takes so much internal reflection to even consider stepping into this work. Um, And it means um, being able to be mutually vulnerable, which is really scary. Um, So I think my first word is thank you. Um, And the other piece is just, it is a journey. It's an ever-evolving journey. Uh, Allow yourself to give and receive at every part of the journey. Allow yourself to give and receive at every part of the journey. Um, I think that also ties into the decolonization part, is that we are always working with one another. We're always working in conjunction. There's never a time that I'm with a client that I feel like I'm doing for them. Because we are always, it is a parallel process. As they are growing, I am growing. And we push each other into that process. Um, you asking these questions, we are in growth together. We're in process together. So being open to, be open to give and receive um, and to, um, to just always be able to, there's a piece that someone shared. It was a panel I saw. And I think about 
we're so big into talking about self-care and self-healing and all those pieces of it. And I just want to hear self, 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 self. But I'm like, we're never like, I don't, my care is in community. Um, And the piece I want to say is that sometimes when we are in the thick of the work and we're sitting in suffering, we sometimes um, unintentionally think we have to martyr ourselves that if our clients are not experiencing joy and are not able to have goodness in their life or have privilege, then there's some part of us that we feel guilt that we shouldn't either. That we are like, oh, my client, you know, they're, they're in jail and I am free. I need to experience that suffering. And I just, I think that the people that you are working to serve would not want that for you. That you have an opportunity to embrace and have joy and for them. Um, I think that the best way I can say is that I was extremely pregnant at Seattle Children's Hospital where I was um, a medical social worker for a long time, super pregnant, and I was on the floor. And I'm on a floor where all the clients that are there, all the patients are diagnosed with cancer. And this mom came out and her son was, um, I think over 18, probably 19 years old. He was in a room that day and, and he was, um, it was a family I was working with and, uh, he was terminal and, um, there was nothing. He was there. We were trying to give him some treatments and, and essentially though there was, we could not cure his cancer. We knew that he was going to die of that cancer. And I was on the floor in all my enormity. Um, I'm five feet tall. So I was like at the tail end of my pregnancy. And this mom came out and she came right up to me. She's like, Tanya. And she took my belly in her hands and she leaned over and she kissed it. Oh, wow. And she said, oh, hello, baby. Hi, baby. And I was so overwhelmed that her son could lay dying in that room. And she could still hold space that I was growing a human life, hopeful that my child could come into this world and have life as her child was exiting this world. And so that's the part where I think she could hold joy for me in her hardest, most terrible moment of her life. She could hold joy for me. So we have to, there's not a better way for me to say it than I was humbled and I just received that love and joy right straight to my being. Um, so just, I know that we will, we will watch our, our clients suffer and struggle. We will watch communities struggle. Um, and we also will live these lives that also have joy and hardship. Um, and so can you find your path about being able to hold the people we are serving and working towards healing with? And also not owning something that isn't, isn't something for ours to own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's, it's a hard thing to describe, but yeah. yeah. So that's mm-hmm. what I would say is that um, be open to give and receive at every moment. Um, yeah. And uh, being able to sustain in this work is hard. Um, and it's an evolution of figuring out how to sustain uh, being around folks like you, Gabe's, helps me sustain, um, bring me growth and joy. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking these hard questions. Um, thank you for holding me.
Thank you. Thank you. Ditto. So mutual. Wow. I'll be musing over these stories, over these words. I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening will be as well and will be a huge part of their own growth and in their own journey, however way or wherever place they are in, in this uh, beautiful, messy process called healing. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.